If you have a Bible, go ahead and take it and turn to the book of Luke, the third book in the New Testament, the Gospel according to Luke. We began a series on Luke, actually a little over a year ago, it was last December that we started in the book of Luke, and we are in Luke chapter 9 this morning. So we've had some breaks and we've been taking our time uh, through the book of Luke, but I know that many of you have joined us since we began last December, um, so I thought it'd be good to give a little recap. Um, and for those that w- have been with us since last December, it's good to go back and um, even I, as I went back through, said, oh yeah, that was... Really cool to see that in the life of Jesus. And so let's just think back at what has led up to this moment in the book of Luke, because Luke is building an argument. He, he begins his gospel, Luke begins his gospel by saying that, that he, his goal is to write a narrative of the life of Jesus through eyewitness testimony. So he gathers eyewitness testimonies about Jesus' life from that time period and compiles this narrative, and he writes to a man named Theophilus, and he says, the reason that I'm writing is so that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So Luke wants us to be sure, he wants Theophilus, he wants his readers, and he wants us to be sure about the things we have heard concerning Jesus. And so Luke compiles this, but he's not just a great historian, he is that, but he's also a theologian, he's a a pastor, he has a purpose, he doesn't just want us to, to know things, but he wants us to believe what he writes. He wants us to believe who Jesus was, and he wants us to believe in Jesus, to be changed. And he continually reminds us that Jesus was not just another man. But this main theme of Luke is that Jesus is the Savior of the world, and he is Lord of all. So in the first two chapters, we see this uh, amazing and miraculous event surrounding Jesus' birth. We hear prophecies from Mary and Zechariah and Simeon and and Anna. And then in chapter 3, we hear the testimony of John the Baptist, this wild man from the wilderness comes out. He's the last of the prophets. He's this voice crying in the wilderness. And he comes and he calls God's people to repentance. He tells about this one who's coming, the son of Adam, the son of of Abraham, the son of David, the son of God, who is going to come and, and bring deliverance for God's people. And he will be exalted above all. And then Jesus takes center stage. And he comes and we see him triumph over the temptations of Satan. He meets Satan in the wilderness, and Jesus conquers all the temptations of Satan. And then he's he's glorified in his baptism, and the Father opens up heaven and speaks out of heaven and says, This is my Son, in whom I am pleased. And then Jesus goes to Nazareth, and he takes up the scroll of Isaiah, you remember that, and he says, This is who I am. He says, The Lord has anointed me, and I have come to usher in the year of the Lord's favor. And they run him out of town. And then Jesus, from that point on, he, we've seen him healing people and, and raising people from the dead and touching lepers and, and, and reaching out to the outcast. And all the while, through his deeds and through his words, he is proclaiming that he is the Savior of the world, that he is the long-awaited Messiah. Back in September, we were in chapters 8 and 9, and we started to ask this question, who is Jesus? That's the question that, that Luke begins to pose. And he has different stories and, and different answers to that question. Who is Jesus? We see the disciples out on the, on the water and the, the sea comes and this, this storm is thrown into the waters and they are scared out of their minds and they stand back and they watch as Jesus comes and he calms the sea with just a word. And we see that Jesus is the Lord of creation. Who is Jesus? He's the Lord of creation. And then he encounters this man filled with thousands of demons, literally. 
thousands of demons, a man who no one could control, who broke every chain that, chain that, that people tried to bind him with. And Jesus comes, and with one word, he frees this man from these demons, and he announces that he is Lord over demons and over the devil. Then there's a woman that had this plague, a, a flow of blood that has plagued her for, for 12 years. She's been an outcast for 12 long years. She could be healed by no one. Every doctor couldn't do anything. And in an instant, she reaches out, she just touches Jesus' clothes. And she's healed in a moment. And Jesus has power over disease. He's the Lord over disease. And then Jesus comes to Jairus' house, where Jairus' little 12-year-old daughter has just died. And he walks in, and the mourners are all around, and Jesus enters the room where this little girl's lifeless body is, and he comes, and he takes her by the hand, and he says a word. She raises from the dead, and Jesus says, I am Lord over death. He's Lord over creation. He's Lord over the demons. He's, he's Lord over disease. He's Lord over death itself. And everyone starts to hear about this, and we saw at the beginning of chapter 9, Herod, one of the leaders placed by the Roman government, hears about all this, and he wonders aloud the question everyone's asking, who is this guy? Who is this that I'm hearing all these things about? And while he's contemplating that in his palace, Jesus is out feeding 5,000 people with two loaves of bread and, and some sardines. And so from the leaders in the palaces to the poor people who are looking for a meal any way they can get it, and everyone in between, everyone is asking the question, who is Jesus? Everyone is forced to decide who Jesus is. And so are we. Even today, 2,000 years later, we are forced to come to the conclusion, to, to have an answer to this question, who is Jesus? As we continue to answer this question, we find in Luke chapter 9, verses 18 through 22, where we're going to be today, we find this about Jesus. Jesus is the Savior that some are able to see and that no one ever expected. That's what I want us to think about this morning, that Jesus is the Savior that some are able to see and that no one ever expected. Let's read these verses in Luke chapter 9, verses 18 through 22. Luke writes, Now it happened that as he, Jesus, was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, Who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. And he strictly charged them and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. This comes on the heels of the the feeding of the 5,000, or on the heels of that story. Luke tells us that that Jesus had come together with his disciples uh, and and what is going to follow is one of the most significant events in the life of Jesus and, and the disciples. It's, it's the turning point in all three of the, of, of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's the turning point in the Gospels where everything starts to drive towards the cross and the resurrection. And, and as much as the Gospels are actually pushing towards that, it, it almost seems like the Gospels are this funnel that come to this, this very point where Jesus asks the question, who do people say that I am and who do you say that I am? And he reveals that that death and resurrection are what awaits him, and then everything explodes from there out. This is a central point in all the Gospels, and it's a central question. And Luke tells us that before this happens, you notice what it says, Luke is the only one that says this, but it says, Now it happened that as he was praying 
alone, the disciples were with him. Jesus was praying alone. I'm reminded back in chapter 6, verse 12, where Luke tells us that Jesus spent the whole night on the mountain in prayer before he chose the twelve and before he preached the Sermon on the Mount. And then we'll see Luke writes later on in Acts chapter 13 that before the sending out of Paul and Barnabas, that the church was gathered together in prayer and fasting. And so I just think we need to pause at this moment and remind ourselves just this simple truth that we know but that we forget and it's, it's this, that prayer precedes power. Prayer always precedes power. The significant events, the turning points in your life, in my life, and in all of history follow focused prayer. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is the vine. And we are the branches. And if we're not abiding in him, then we will produce no fruit if we fail to call on Jesus, nothing we do as individuals, nothing we do as a church will ever have lasting significance. So let's be constant in prayer. Let's be like Jesus. Because prayer precedes power. And significant significance follows seeking God. We need to pray. And that's what Jesus does here. And, and after he's praying is when this event happens. Yeah, I like to envision these scenes. We might envision, envision these verses in our, in our minds. The, the disciples, Matthew and Mark tell us, are, are in Caesarea Philippi. Uh, maybe they were in a home. But, but Jesus often is outdoors when he's focused in prayer, isn't he? He's, he's on a mountain or he's in a garden. So I just imagine them outside. I don't have any proof for that, but it's just what I like to think, maybe sitting underneath a tree. Um, and they're sitting there, and after some time of Jesus praying in silence, he turns to the disciples and he says, Who do the crowds say that I am? It's the question that uh, that we all want to ask, isn't it? What do people say about me when I'm not in the room? <laughs> you know, it's, um, what do people really think about me? It's the question you wanted to ask maybe when you were dating someone, and you said, What do your parents think about me? What do your friends say about me when I'm not around? What do you guys talk about when I'm not in the room? And Jesus says, what, what are the crowds? Who, who do the crowds say that I am? What, what's the word on the street about me? You guys, the, you guys are out there. You hear what they're saying. What are they saying about me? I mean, the disciples heard the crowds talk. The disciples knew what people were saying about Jesus. They know the reactions that people are having to Jesus. Of course, Jesus knows too. Because Jesus knows everything. And so there's a sense in which he knows, but this is a teaching opportunity. He says, what does everyone else say about who I am? I want you guys to think about the options that are before you. What do the crowds say about me? They give three options. There's, there's three options that the crowds say. And it's the same three options that were given to Herod back in verses 7 through 8, interestingly. Most people, the, the majority opinion was, he's John the Baptist. It's John the Baptist back from the dead. Because Herod had cut off John the Baptist's head. Now, Jesus doesn't have the beard of John the Baptist, and he doesn't have the, the, the camel skin overcoat of John the Baptist, but he has the same message as John the Baptist, doesn't he? It's repent. And, and so it, it kind of makes sense that they would think this is, this is John the Baptist. But again, this is amazing, isn't it? John's been beheaded by Herod, and people are saying that Jesus is John back from the dead. Well, some people didn't buy that it was John, so the, the second most popular opinion was that he was Elijah. It kind of makes sense, because Elijah had been taken up into heaven by a chariot of fire, and there was this prophecy that he would arrive as the forerunner to the Messiah. And if you read the life of Elijah, 
Elijah's miracles and Elijah's life look most similar to Jesus, you might say. So it's not a bad guess about who it is. But it's kind of ironic, isn't it? Because, in fact, John is the one that comes in the spirit and the power of Elijah. And John is is Elijah. He is the forerunner to Christ. And so the two options they have are almost the same person. So, some pe- But some people didn't even think it was Elijah. They thought that it was just, he was one of the prophets back from the dead. Not John, not Elijah, but another man that was speaking with authority from God. Now, think about these three options, and let me just make some observations about the crowd's opinions. The first thing I would say is that no one says he's just a man. No one says he's just some guy. At the very least, they recognize he's a prophet, that he is speaking for God. He has a message from God that he is giving to the people. That's that's the baseline that people think about him. Not only that, but they're saying there's something supernatural about this guy. Not only is he a prophet, but he's not a new prophet. He's an old prophet back from the dead. That's what people are saying about Jesus. It's just amazing to me that that's, that's the, the majority opinion. He's, at the very least, a resurrected prophet with a message from God. He is not just a man. No one in that day was saying he was just a man. Of course, in our day, people do say that Jesus was just a man. He was just some guy. Many would deny an account like Luke's and say that Jesus was nothing special, but that he was like Davy Crockett. Now, how, what does that mean? Davy Crockett, I loved Davy Crockett when I was growing up, the king of the wild frontier. Uh, did you watch those movies? Uh, maybe you didn't. I loved them. I ran around my house in a coonskin cap with some strange cap gun. Um, but Davy Crockett was a real guy. He was a real man. He was a soldier. He was a frontiersman. He was actually a U.S. state representative for Tennessee. Uh, and he, he fought in the Battle of the Alamo and died there. But he also became a legend. He became a, a tall tale. So stories came out of his life. Listen to this story. This is Davy Crockett, real man, but this is a story that came out of his life. One winter it was so cold that the dawn froze solid. The sun got caught between two ice blocks and the earth iced up so much that it couldn't turn. Uh, the first rays of sunlight froze halfway over the mountaintops. They looked like yellow icicles dripping towards the ground. Now, Davy Crockett was headed home after a successful night hunting when the dawn froze up so solid. Being a smart man, he knew he had to do something quick or the earth was a goner. He had a freshly killed bear on his back. So he whipped it off, climbed right up those rays of sunlight, and began beating the hot bear carcass against the ice blocks, which was squashing the sun which were squashing the sun. Soon a gush of hot oil burst out of the bear, and it melted the ice. Davy gave the sun a good hard kick to get it started, and the sun's heat unfroze the earth, and it started spinning again. So Davy lit his pipe on the sun, shouldered the bear, slid himself down the sun rays before they melted, and took a bit of sunshine home in his pocket. (laughs) Now, none of us think that that really happened. No, is Davy Crockett a real person? Yes. Did he unfreeze the dawn with the bear carcass? Definitely not. But amazingly, some people think that that's what Jesus is, that Jesus is like Davy Crockett, that that he was a real person, but that people have built these stories up around him, uh, and and the testimony of Scripture is not true. It's just some sort of fantasy that, that religious people have built around Jesus. But the testimony of Scripture, of the, of the Gospels of, of Luke, Tell us the the true story of Jesus. This is not a tall tale, but it is 
It is the record of who Jesus really was and what he really did. And I think even that this, the fact that everyone looked at him and said, he's not just another guy, is in fact a testimony that he truly was not just another man, that no one is saying he's just some crazy guy, but they're all saying he's a prophet. He's a prophet risen from the dead. So no one dismisses him as simply a natural man, but I think we can also note that, that everyone has an opinion about Jesus. No one is really neutral when it comes to who Jesus is. Uh, the crowd in our day may not have an opinion about who Jesus is, but those who are confronted with his life, with his, with his claims, are forced to come to some sort of conclusion about who he is. That's, that's what we as the church are to do. We are to be salt and light, and part of that is that, that we come to all people, we present them with the person of Jesus Christ, and we say, who do you think he is? What do you think about Jesus? you got to fall somewhere. You have to make a decision. You can't remain neutral about who Jesus is. That's, in fact, what Jesus does with his disciples. So right on the heels of that first question, he, he gets all of the responses what, about what the crowds think, the different options, and then things get silent for a little while, and Jesus breaks the awkward silence, and he says, But who do you think I am? Who do you say that I am? He looks at these men who have been with him throughout his ministry, who have seen his power, who have, in fact, been given his power to do ministry, and he wants to know their conclusion. What do you guys think? What if you were there? What if you were sitting with the disciples that day? Or, or what if Jesus just came to you, he showed up right now and he said, Who do you say that I am? Who do you think that I am? It's really, I think, the ultimate question of life that everyone has to answer at some point. People talk about that, that question that you're going to get when we die and we face God, the, the question may be at the, the gate of heaven or at the judgment seat of Christ. And, and some people say that that question is something like, why should I let you into my heaven? I think a better question maybe that, that we can think about God asking at that moment or Jesus asking is to envision Jesus, Lord of all creation, Lord of salvation, looking at every person and say, saying, who do you say that I am? What do you think about me? What do you believe about me? Am I, am I a great prophet? Risen from the dead? Am I, am I simply like one of the other prophets? Am I, am I John the Baptist? Am I Elijah? Am I like Moses? Am I even maybe like, some say, like Muhammad, just another in the, the line of prophets? Am I a, a great moral teacher or an ancient philosopher like Plato or Aristotle? Am I a leader of some sort of religion like Buddha or Joseph Smith? Am I a tall tale? Like Davy Crockett, am I some guy that it really existed, but all these stories have been built up around me? Who do you say that I am? A lot of opinions about who Jesus is and, and who he was. And the crowds throughout history have had something to say about who he was. But the question this morning is, who do you say that he is? Who do you think Jesus is? C.S. Lewis has famously written that we have three options. We can say he was a liar, he was a lunatic, or he was Lord. Listen to this great quote. Many of you have heard it before, but it bears repeating. Lewis writes, I am trying to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. Lewis says, that is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, 
or else he would be the devil himself. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Isn't that, I love that last part. He didn't intend to. Jesus wants to force us to make a decision. Do you accept him as who he says he is? So let's go back to the disciples. How are they going to answer? And who's going to answer first? That's the easy question. Peter. Of course Peter's going to be the one to answer first. Aren't you thankful for guys like Peter? People that uh, stand up, right or wrong, and say what they think, loud and proud. Now, I'm a little bit more reserved. And the world would be a quiet place if it was made up of people just like me. And sometimes the Peters in my life get on my nerves a little bit. You know, just be quiet. But, you know, I, I read this and I thought, man, I'm so thankful that Peter stood up. He said it loud and proud. He said what he believed. And so I'm thankful in the church that not everyone's like me. And there's people that just will stand up courageously and say what they believe. So here's Peter and the other disciples, and they ask the question. And before the other disciples even have a, the moment to process the question, Jesus, Peter just belts out, you're the Christ of God. The crowd had not yet grasped who Jesus was because Jesus is the Savior that only some are able to see. But in the midst of a confused crowd, Peter speaks with clarity, proclaiming that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the anointed one. He, he's the one the Jewish people and all the world have been looking for and, and the one that's been sent from God to make all things right. That word Christ there is, is translated Christ, but it means Messiah. God had promised from the very beginning, from Adam on, that one was coming that was going to set all things right, that was going to crush the serpent's head, that was going to bless all nations. From, from Adam to Abraham to, to David, one was coming that was going to be the fulfillment of all these promises. He was going to be the greatest prophet. He was going to be the greatest king. He was going to be the greatest priest. And the whole nation is looking and waiting for the arrival of this one, this person. And Peter sees what the crowds can't see, and he says, Jesus, you're the one. You're the one we've all been waiting for, and, and you're here. He's, he's arrived. Way to go, Peter, right? He recognizes it. I mean... And if we're those that have seen it, way to go us, right? We're smarter than the rest of the crowd. We've got it all figured out. No, I'm joking when I say that. Matthew gives us a little bit more of that response. Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. We don't look at Peter and say, all right, Peter, he's got to figure it out. And all right, me, I figured it out that I believe what the crowd can't figure out. I've seen what no one else understands, that Jesus is the Christ. And Jesus says, no, you are blessed. It's a unique blessing, but it's not because of you. It's because the Father has revealed it to you. So we do, Jesus doesn't say, way to go, Peter. He says, Peter, you are blessed. You have received the gift of seeing who I truly am. You said those words, but you didn't come to that conclusion on your own. The Father revealed it to you. And if we stand with Peter as those that proclaim that Jesus is the Savior of the world, we don't do it with pride. We don't do it thinking, look how smart we are that we've figured this thing out. Jesus says in Matthew 11, 
I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your grace as well. Gracious well, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Salvation is a gift to those who are like little children. It's not to the wise and the understanding. It's to those that, that will believe. It's to those that, that look at Jesus, that, that, that read Scripture and say, it's true. I believe it. I accept it with childlike faith. And so if you or I hold this, this knowledge with some sort of pride or a sense of superiority or, or the thought that we've earned our salvation, whether by good works or because of, of who we are, then I think that Jesus might ask us another question. Very kindly, he might say, who do you think you are? <laughs> Not who am I, but who do you think you are? That, that, that you think you're so smart because you figured this out? No. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. You didn't figure this out on your own. It's been revealed to you. So maybe you're on the other end of that spectrum. You say, it's, it's not, I think I'm so smart, but, but maybe, who do I think I am? That, that Jesus would be my savior. And, and I think that, that we need to remember that Jesus has come. Know this. Jesus has come to save people that don't have it all together. Jesus has come to save the people, not the, the wise and the understanding, but, but the little children. Those that, that maybe don't get it right off the bat. He's not come to, for people that, that can climb some ladder to heaven, but he's come for people that have had every ladder that they've set up kicked out from underneath them. And Jesus actually comes to kick all your ladders out from underneath you and make you fall and realize, I, I can't figure this out on my own, Jesus. He comes for people that are on their knees saying, I, I need help, Father. He comes to be the Savior. He's the Savior that some are able to see, but, but he's also the Savior that no one ever expected. He's the Savior that no one ever expected. Peter proclaims Jesus as the Messiah. He's the King of Israel. He's the greatest prophet. And the disciples, like every other Jewish person, then expected him to take over, to set up his, his earthly rule, to deliver them from, from Roman oppression and begin the reign of God on earth. But before they can even rejoice in this truth, Peter says, you are the Christ of God. And Jesus says, shh, don't tell anyone. <laughs> Isn't that strange? This is, this is like discovering the greatest mystery in the world and then having someone tell you, you're not allowed to tell anyone. You've got to keep this a secret. Why, why does Jesus do that? Why does he say not to tell anyone? In John's account, right after the feeding of the 5,000, the crowds try to take Jesus and forcibly make him king. And surely that's what the disciples are thinking here. That, that they're going to make him king, that he's going to set up this rule and he's going to deliver them from all this oppression. But Jesus is not the, the Messiah that they expected. And he quiets them in, in order that, to hold off the crowds from either crowning him as king or crucifying him as a criminal. He's got to keep a cap on this for at least a little while because he has some things that he needs to do. And if, if this explodes too quickly then he's going to be in trouble. And so he, he he has this messianic secret, they call it, so that he can put the lid on it and, and for as long as possible so he can accomplish all that the Father has sent him to do. But after all of this comes, he knows that his his death is, is coming. He's not trying to hold this off forever. He says this, that it must happen, doesn't he? So he says in verse 21, he strictly charged them and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, so this is the reason, saying, 
the Son of Man must, that's a really important word, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. He has to he has to do these things. It's it's necessary. And if this thing blows up too quickly, then these things will not happen. You need to keep it quiet because I have to suffer. I must suffer, he says. He has to face the difficulties of life that we all face. He has to have the pain of being misunderstood, the pain of seeing a friend die, the pain of being betrayed, physical pain that he's going to suffer. He has to be rejected. This must happen. I have. This has to happen. I have to be rejected. He's going to face this mock trial. He's going to have all the the leaders of Israel who, who reject him as a as a fraud and a blasphemy. Everyone that's important in the religious system. He's got to have the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. That whole group has to reject him. This has to happen. And I have to die. I have to be killed. He says this must happen. He has to face that trial. He has to be killed as a as a common criminal for crimes that he never committed. But this has to happen. And then almost as a side note, he says, and I have to be raised on the third day from the dead. All had to happen. Why? Why is there no other option? Because if Jesus is going to do what the Father sent him to do, if he's going to be the Savior of the world, then he has to be the sacrifice for sins. He has to be rejected by men. He has to be rejected by men so that we can be accepted by God. He has to suffer so that we can know true life. He has to die so that we can live. He has to rise from the dead so that we can have new life. This is the only way of salvation. This is why it has to happen. Satan had offered him a different path. You remember the temptation. He had offered them a, a way to be exalted that didn't go through the cross. And Jesus rejects that option because he knows there's no other way. If he's going to do the father, what the Father has sent him to do, he has to suffer. He has to be rejected. He has to die. He has to rise. And Satan shows up again right at this point in Matthew's account. Right after Jesus says, I have to suffer and die, he, he gives this whole description Peter takes him aside, and the text says he rebukes Jesus, and he says, no, Jesus, that's not going to happen. You're, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You can't suffer and die. And what does Jesus say to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. Satan shows up in this moment to, to try to squelch the, what he knew would be his ultimate defeat. It looks like Jesus is going to be defeated on the cross, but in fact, it's the true defeat of the world, the flesh, and the devil himself and Jesus must suffer he must be rejected he must die he must rise from the dead so that he can accomplish what he came to do he does it for your sin does it for my sin we've all rebelled against the holy god and unless Jesus comes and pays the penalty to our sin unless Jesus pays that penalty which is death then we are all lost and we cannot be made right with god it has to happen and some of us see that. Jesus is the Savior that some of us see. And if you see that, don't hold that knowledge as some sort of pride. Jesus says you are blessed if you see it. 
God has opened your eyes. The Father has revealed that to you. And, and so we should hold it in, in humility. But if you don't see Him, if, if I'm talking these things and you do think He's that maybe Jesus wasn't a real person, you don't understand the, the death, I pray that, that you would pray and say, God, help me to see the Savior that He is. Help me to understand these things. And maybe right now you're seeing Him for the first time. You're seeing this. It's, it's all connecting. It's making sense. I pray that you would talk to someone, that, that we would help you to, to see who this Savior is, who what it means that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah that, that no one ever expected. They wanted a song that I, I like by a guy named Andrew Peterson. He says, they wanted a king on a throne full of power with a sword in his fist. That's what they wanted. That's the king that they expected. But Isaiah tells us the kind of king that was coming. He's the suffering servant. Isaiah tells us in chapter 53, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. This is the kind of Messiah that's coming. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him the chastisement that brought us peace was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus was the Messiah no one ever expected because he was the suffering servant. He didn't come and take over like the king they expected. He came and he laid down his life. Why? Because it had to happen that way. There was no other option for him to bring about the salvation of the world.